The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. Miles to travel before I sleep. Welcome to All Things Crime. Tammy, welcome to All Things Crime. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on. You know, anybody that is willing to serve 32 years with a sheriff's department deserves all sorts of accolades and respect. So I wanted to have you on and um, talk about those 32 years. Thank you. So Tammy, we met on LinkedIn. So we've never actually met in person, but that's kind of the way things go in our virtual world now, in the world of COVID. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in law enforcement? Um, well, I started law enforcement in 1988 and I was 19 years old. So at that time um, here in Florida, you couldn't go through the police academy or be certified until you were 21. So I started out in the communications division and I was there for almost a year. And our department was um, seeking accreditation. And with accreditation, you know, you needed more minorities and females. And so they, they came to me and they said, if you're still interested in going to the police academy, we'll let you go. So it was kind of, it, it was like, it was just magical because I went through the police academy at 20. I turned 21 in April. I graduated the police academy in May. Therefore, I was eligible to go to the academy. <laughs> so um, I started out in patrol with... I, my entire career was with the, the same agency. I never left. Um, so it was without being absent at all. Um, I started out on patrol and I stayed out on patrol for about 12 years with no desire to be a detective. I mean, the call outs and um, the court, I wasn't interested. Um, but ironically, my children were little and my son was about six years old. And when I would go to work, for patrol, he started to become stressed out. Um, you know, I think it's probably the age where they can see TV and understand things. So um, he was going through a rough time. He was always worried about me going out on patrol and um, having backup is what he would say. Make sure, you know, the, the good guys there are to back you up. I just thought, I thought it was causing stress for him. So I figured if I got off the road, maybe be a detective, a little slot in a district doing property crimes, it would be less stressful. And it, it was good for a career, honestly. I took the detective test and the um, only option on the table was the one thing I didn't want, sex crimes. <laughs> no. You know, having kids, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't want to see what goes on in our world, how horrible it is. I, I figured I'd be a worse hovering parent. Um, however, that was the spot that was open and uh, the spot that I was chosen for. I remember making the phone call to my husband and saying, where did I say I didn't want to go? And he said, sex crimes. And I said, where do you think they're putting me? He said, sex crimes. He said, suck it up for a year and then transfer. So I, I jumped into the sex crimes unit and uh, it was probably the best career move I made. Nobody wants to do sex crimes, you know, because they're so horrific. They really are um, emotionally draining. Uh, for me, once I got in there, it was my passion. Uh, I, I, I feel like I flourished. The ugliness kind of goes away because you, you have to solve the case. You have to get some justice. You have to see it through. And I stayed there for eight years. Um, after eight years in, in that unit, I was a detective, the sergeant, then promoted the lieutenant and took upon child pornography, child abuse, and sex crimes. Um, I was in charge of those three units. And then after eight years in there, um, towards the end of my career, I went back out to patrol and I served as a watch commander for Lee County. And then I served as a district commander for the North Fort Myers area. And that's why I retired. Wow. <clears throat> that is quite the career. So in the Fort Myers area, how many people are there? 
Well, we have the unincorporated part of Lee County, so we're right at about 800,000. Lee County's big. I think we were the seventh largest agency in the state. Um, I'm not sure if we're you know, still seventh or sixth, but we're, we're a large agency. We're in the middle of, uh, if you're going down the interstate, we're between Miami and Tampa. Yeah, it's a, boy, it's a beautiful area. A lot of people moving in there, but with population comes crime. Indeed. And especially when you have a uh, year round sun and it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing area, but just like everywhere other, else in the world, whenever you have that many people in that small of an area, you're, you're bound to have a fair amount of, of crime. You, you said the sex crimes was so horrific. And especially as a mom, how were you able to compartmentalize that? I had a very good unit. When I came in as a detective, um, there were six of us that did primarily just sex crimes. Um, that was before we even took on the physical child abuse. And uh, being with people, other detectives, we would relate to each other. You know, I, I was thinking about this this morning, and I thought every time we came back from an interview from the child protection team, um, and they're tasked with interviewing children, uh, victims of crime. I thought about it this morning. I thought every time we came home or came back to the office, the, the comment was always the same. Wow, that was sad. Or that was horrible. We'd hang out together. We'd eat lunch every day together um, on the really bad, bad crimes or the crimes that it's a stranger, um, which is a little unusual. You know, sex crimes for it to be a stranger perpetrator. Um, that's a little unusual. They're usually a paramour or a parent or a neighbor or a guardian or teacher, um, especially with children. Um, but we would as a team, respond as a team, and everybody would be tasked with a little piece of it, and we'd get through it. You really don't have a choice. You're in it, you're not. Right. It's it's just a matter of, I, I've never actually investigated a sex crime, but because of the nature of the system that I, that I sell, you know, of course, I've been involved with helping collect DNA off of, you know, a, a number of cases and, and the evidence that especially cold cases that's left over, but I, I've never actually had to go in there and interview the victims, the victim's family, all of those kind of things. So why don't you walk us through kind of how you would approach a case like that? Um, well, if we're dealing with children and um, quite honestly, the, the majority of your cases are going to be children. When you first initially get the case, uh, whether it come from a parent calling or from the Department of Children's and Families, well, you would get the case and then you would uh, set the child up here in Florida. The only interviews done with children are by an advocacy center or the child protection team. This circuit, this 20th judicial circuit where we are, um, there's a judicial role and that role only allows for a certain number of interviews of children. So basically the detective or the investigator would not take upon that role. A patrol would go out and take the report, substantiate that a crime had occurred. And then we would, the detective would get the case, interview the parent or the guardian, set it up for the child protection team, and they would do the interview. When they're doing the interview, it's videotaped and law enforcement, like I would be uh, down the hall in a room watching it. Um, much like the Zoom meeting. Um, and I would I write the list of questions that I needed answered to substantiate that a case occurred or, you know, a warrant. And uh, they would ask those questions. Then they would break in the meeting and then, or their interview, come back down and ask me if I got what I needed to um, substantiate the crime. And then from there, there could be a forensic interview if there was injuries. injuries and then we'd be tasked with 
is there any evidence to go out and get? Is there DNA in a house? Is there dirty, you know, linens or clothing or an instrument? And then we would do a search warrant on that home to retrieve the evidence and then prepare our case. We're a little unusual here in Florida too. Um, we write our own warrants and then we, you know, we would take them to the state attorney's office who would go before a judge and we'd get the warrant. Um, that's a little unusual. A lot of other states have the ability to have a state attorney or a district attorney do that for them. We do all that. We write our own search warrants and our own arrest warrants. It's it's a long task. I mean, it's not easy, especially um, a little different than a homicide investigator in that if there's a homicide, it's all hands on deck. Uh, you have the whole, you know, evidence collecting forensics team. You have multiple detectives. I don't want to say an unlimited budget, but their budget's a little bit larger than sex crimes for private labs and whatnot. But they're they're focused with that homicide only. Sex crimes, you might have a dozen to 20 cases a month. And I used to tell our team when I was a, a sergeant, every one of your cases, if it's sitting on your desk or it's sitting on a file on your computer, is a victim. So you can't just say, you know, this child, I'm going to I'm going to put on the back burner because this one just came in last night. I mean, you're constantly juggling. But if you're going to do a, ju a good job and you're going to make sure that kids are safe, that's what you do. And that's why they're, they're just mentally exhausting. Yeah. And those cases, uh, even though you're compartmentalizing, they don't go away. And so until until they're actually yeah. solved, they're, they're always hanging out in the back of your mind. And I'm sure that takes a toll. Well, you know... It like I said before, your your victims are usually the perpetrators known. Um, so at that point, if you have, for example, a paramour or mom's boyfriend that's perping on the child, uh, and you have a you have a good mother that's going to report it and protect their child, um, it's not as hard as if you don't have enough to bring somebody into custody immediately, and then you might not have a mother that believes their child. So the fear is very real that they're going to be re-victimized and you can't protect them. So you're, you're literally tasked with working until you get what you need to make the arrest or disprove the allegations. And, you know, we do have those, you know, especially holidays or if one parent has a child for Christmas um, and you have a vindictive parent that wants the child, they might make a false allegation just to you know, to get you over the two or three day Christmas holiday. And those are unfortunate because you, you still have to investigate it. Like it's, you know, a real crime. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because it takes from the real crimes, but you know, they're not, they're not very often realistically um, even just with the prosecution of cases, um, especially with sex crimes, you don't usually go to trial a lot. You usually get a lot of confessions because there's an emotional bond between the perpetrator and the victim. And usually at that point, the perpetrator, he'll make a confession or he'll do a plea in court. So you don't have to go to trial to save the victim, you know, that emotional trauma. But if you do go to trial, juries today, they want DNA. You know, they watch TV, they watch all these crime shows, they absolutely believe that it's impossible that there not be DNA. And I mean, realistically, yeah, there is, but we're not always going to get it. It could be an allegation of um, a child molestation, which is just is the touching, the mere touching. And they report it three days later and, you know, the clothes aren't even around or, you know, it was in another state or another location, but jurors don't want to hear that. Yeah. Which they want, is, you know, they want the hole in one. And unfortunately and that's frustrating. Yes. I I've heard that from many detectives. And as you know, the, the MVAC is a wet vacuum that collects DNA 
And so it, it can get down much deeper into even fabrics and things and, and collect DNA. But I, I think most juries may or may not understand is that if the perpetrator lives in the same home, then regardless of whether they've committed the crime or not, the DNA is going to be on that victim's clothes, most likely yeah. even on the victim's skin. And yes. so, yeah, DNA is not going to not going to be a major factor because it can be so easily discounted. It, it's when it's when the perpetrator doesn't have any any reason to be in that home or the, the DNA beyond that victim. That's the only time that it really comes into play. And it's I agree with you that a CSI effect can really be a, a major factor one way or another and swing in a jury, even when it shouldn't. Right. It's a hurdle. It really is. It's a hurdle. And, you know, with prosecuting cases, you could have somebody that's been in prison for sexually molesting a child, be out of prison for five years, recommit a crime or be a suspect in other crimes. And we're not going to be able to tell the jury that either. I don't think I'll ever understand that because, you know, with the chances that the likelihood of the same person being accused of the same type of crimes in a certain period is not very, it's not very often. So it's almost as if, and I, and I may, I get a hundred percent that people are falsely accused. I do. I understand that and falsely imprisoned, but it is frustrating when, you know, you might lose a trial and somebody just hurt a, a, a child or, you know, a stranger sexual battery. It is very frustrating. Yeah, we've been a big part of a particular case where a guy uh, named Chris Tapp actually served 20 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. And, and eventually DNA actually helped helped him be released. But at the same time, our, our justice system, for the most part, will screen those out. So it, it's yes, there are, there are false imprisonments and, and those are tragic. But allowing a perpetrator to go free off of a small technicality or the lack of evidence, something like that. Like you said, most of the time, if another crime is to be committed, it's going to be committed by somebody that's done it before. I mean, the recidivism rate is pretty high. Yeah. being able, And especially the same victim. I, I don't know. I'm sure you probably have stats in your area, but how long some victims are victimized before they're actually caught. Do you have any any kind of an idea on that? Um, only going based off of experience. And, you know, I, I have to be very careful in doing comparisons because I really don't know what the audience here is going to be. If I mean, if I knew if it was strictly law enforcement, then I could say some of the things that we encounter that um, perpetrators do upon kids that they can easily get away with it. It really is usually um, younger children and before they know something's wrong and they report. So it could, you know, like a child molestation could be going on for a number of years and they not realize that it, what, was, what was happening was illegal or it was wrong. I have also, I had one case that the little girl reported that her mom's boyfriend was um, molesting her and uh, she went to the hospital. She was four. She went to the hospital and the hospitals here will not do the forensic exam. They refer to the, the advocacy center. At the hospital, the doctor said, well, we're not going to do an exam. Um, it appears that she just has poor hygiene or maybe bubble baths, which, you know, will cause irritations. And they let her go. I, I remember the deputy calling and saying, never mind uh, the kid, this kid must be lying. No, not at four years old. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't know a lot at that age. But um, so we went out and we brought her to the forensic medical exam at the advocacy center. And um, she she actually had lacerations. And, it, you know, there, we, we obtained enough evidence, um, DNA to make an arrest on that man. And 
about four years later, same child, same mother, different boyfriend Mm. and another confession from him. So you have, you're still going to have at risk victims, um, where parents or guardians make poor choices and continually put their kids in those positions or perpetrators that, like I say, that, uh, you know, they get involved with, uh, that's not, that's very, very common where you have, um, somebody that's been accused of molesting children and then they might move out. And then a couple years later, um, we've had multiple cases like that. They meet another woman that has about a, a child, about eight you know, years old that they feel like they can groom. And then they get involved with that person. And, and that goes back to what I said before, when an arrest gets made, we can't tell the jury <laughs> he was accused of the same thing, you know, a few years prior. So it, right. it goes both ways. Yeah. That the past record does never come into play until the sentencing phase. Right. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, many in many cases it is. I don't know if you know who Jim Clemente is. He was a kind of a sex crimes advocate, especially or not an advocate, but a specialist with the FBI and and profiling. And he was on the show just a few weeks ago, and it was really an interesting discussion because he was talking about how parents and guardians need to be aggressive in protecting their children by informing them of what's appropriate, what's not, especially with the internet, because kids are now being groomed. Mm -hmm. Typically it would take somebody in the neighborhood, somebody in the home that was grooming the child or or even the, the adult victim, grooming that person in a way that they were developing trust and, and moving things along in a way that they would allow them to do their, the, the crime without reporting it. And it, but that grooming nowadays can occur anywhere in the world. It can occur right. through video games. It can occur through all sorts of medium. And so absolutely, what experience with that he's do right. you have? He, and he's absolutely correct. You know, um, it's the simplest things, uh, you know, no parent wants to stand and, and tell their three or four year old getting ready to go to a daycare. If somebody touches you here, it's not right. You know, I mean, at that age, you know, the word but is hysterical, you know, to kids. But if we don't teach them 100 percent, they're going to be groomed with the Internet. A lot of parents just hand the iPad or the telephone to their children to keep them quiet. And they, who knows what they can find on the Internet? I mean, some of them are better than we are getting on websites and they do. And we, we know this for a fact because we have travelers. We have um, men or women that meet children in chat rooms and then come to the area and um, molest them and they're gone. Everything's deleted and they're gone. It is very prevalent now more than ever. And it becomes harder. And another thing that we encourage parents to do is, is to tell their children the appropriate words for body parts. Um, you might do an interview. And I remember one interview, a little girl kept saying he was touching my pocketbook. Okay, a pocketbook is a purse to most of us. But to her, it was her, her vaginal area, you know, so it had we had to go back into incredible detail with this child to make her point to the area and then get her her mother to say why they you know they use that particular language for that area so that it could be explained in front of a jury so it is it's incredibly important to go over good touch bad touch and you hope that gets done in the house i mean it's certainly not going to get done in the schools yeah and frankly i wouldn't want it to be done in the schools. I mean, that's as a parent myself, I, that's something that I, I would absolutely want to do with my wife and I, and, and, and we do. Oh, and and I, I hope other people do too, especially those that are listening to this uh, video or, or podcast. It's, 
it's so important to not assume that your child is safe just because you live in a nice neighborhood. It's just one of those things that is prevalent throughout all of society. And being able to protect your child, when it, whether you're there physically with them or not, is, is super important. So any last thoughts on that? So when you have child victims, it's almost always a known offender. So when we're talking to our kids, like you said about good touch, bad touch, good neighborhood, um, great neighbors, but it is the neighbors, it is the grandfathers, it is the stepfathers, it's the, the person that these children trust that are hurting them. So when parents are, are educating their children or talking to their children about good touch and bad touch, it's important that they don't say uh, the stranger or uh, the monster or any of the other terms that they use, but they need to say anybody, even if it was grandpa, uh, you know, if somebody touched you here and then, you know, by example, if uncle touched you here, what would you do? And have them, you know, do the role play with them because sadly, it's going to be the person that they trust the most that's going to touch their child. And if it's an innocent touch, it's a pat on the butt or something like that. And there's no sexual gratification from it. It's not a crime, but they still need to know, you know, that they have rights and that it's wrong. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to talk about, but at the same time, it's so critically important. Sex crimes to me are some of the, just the, the absolute worst. And unfortunately they're, they're so prevalent that unless parents are more aggressive it's just not going to stop. No, and you're not going to hear about them. Nobody wants to turn on the news and, and hear about a child molestation, but they'll be glued to the news about a homicide. And it, that's much like the funding and whatnot for victim compensation and stuff like that. There's not much out there for sex crimes. When we were, I think I even posted on your LinkedIn about some grants for sex crimes. Um, we worked, our unit worked for years on a DOJ, Department of Justice grant, in which if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have had a lot of the tools that we needed, like, like your MBAC. You know, that would be something that we would be able to purchase with that grant and it wouldn't affect the budget of the department I worked at. You know, it would probably solve a lot of our crimes. And that's where we got our equipment is grants, but they're very difficult to get to. And there's very difficult to keep them because so many agencies want them. It's a tool. Yes. It's a tool in your belt. Yes. But funding is an absolute problem for every agency. Across the board, every agency that I've ever talked to, they've always said, we just don't have the funding for it. So there's a lot of times when those federal grants are the only way that some of the some of this latest and greatest equipment, even uh, helping pay the funding for salaries for specific detectives to, to be a part of a training, a, a cold case, right, a, a sex crimes unit or a cold case unit, something like that. Yeah, that those federal grants are just absolutely amazing. So, which is why we created an entire page on our website that has all those grants and we're updating them all the time. So if anybody wants to, I'll, I'll include that in the, in the link, you know, in the, oh, in yeah, the, as, as part of the, part of the post anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So if anybody has questions about those grants, they, they're more than welcome to, to reach out to us, but you know, before I let you go, part of my tradition for having interviews on, on all things crime is to, lighten things up a little bit before we go. So I'm sure in your 32 years, you had some really absolute hysterical type of um, occurrences as well. So when you are hanging around with your family on Thanksgiving, uh, I'm sure there's some stories that people want to want to hear from you. So does, does any particular one come up to mind? You know, um, my brother-in-law, he just retired as law enforcement too. Um, and now my son is in law enforcement. 
Um, so if we have a holiday or we have a, pop, a party and there's mostly, you know, law enforcement there, um, and obviously you've been cop around cops long enough, you know, our sense of humor is, is awful. <laughs> you know, it might be something so incredibly uh, simple um, that we might look at something and we think, you know, going back to a case or, or something on scene, think it's hysterical. And uh, I think I probably get the biggest kick out of looking at the reactions where everybody's, you know, their eyes are as big as saucers with, oh my God, that's awful. Or how do you think that's funny? Uh, we do, we're sick. Um, but in the, in the sex crimes unit, we had a, a, a lot of interesting search warrants, <laughs> but I wouldn't even want to put them on your podcast. <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I will let people's imagination go with that one. So I'm sure there you had some absolute crazy ones. Well, Tammy, I appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, if there's ever anything we can do for you, then please let me know. Just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing some of your experiences. Really, really important uh, information. And I hope everybody will listen to this and really learn from it because especially when it comes to kids, protecting them cannot be a high enough priority. Yeah, I agree. And if, um, if anything, what I hope to accomplish uh, with your podcast is somebody listening to it and then talking to their children or their nieces, nephews, grandchildren, whatever. And uh, I mean, you can Google and learn how to teach your children, you know, the, uh, what to look for in good touch and bad touch. So if I accomplish that in saving one child from being victimized, it, it, that made my life. That's all I can ask for. Spoken from a true law enforcement professional. So thank you. Th thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Take care. Right. You too. Thank you for listening to All Things Crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime Day.